Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them on just about any device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you got. And here's a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get some literary classics like Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain or East of Eden by John Steinbeck or How About War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Uh, I don't know what this is exactly, but it is good to be with you. It's good to be here. It's good to be functioning. It's good to be uh, breathing air on planet Earth. My guest today is Claire Bidwell-Smith. She's got a new memoir out from Hudson Street Press, which is a, uh, an imprint of Penguin Books. And her memoir is called The Rules of Inheritance... And it is a coming-of-age story about love and about loss and about the grief process. Uh, Claire is an only child, and both of her parents got cancer uh, when she was 14. And she lost her mother tragically at the age of 18 and her father at the age of 26. So she had a really difficult run, and this book was born out of that. And uh, it is unflinching in its account of what happened in the best possible way. So Claire and I are going to be talking at length about all of it. Uh, but not, I should mention, in a way that's completely depressing. In fact, I think that you'll find the conversation to be somewhat uplifting and uh, maybe even a little bit life-affirming. So uh, speaking of the grief and uh, grief process and loss and uh, life-affirming experiences, I was in Colorado last weekend for a couple of days, and I was out there to visit some friends. And most importantly, I was out there to visit the widow and son of my good buddy, uh, one of my very closest friends, 
uh, who passed away last year. He's kind of like a brother to me. So I went out there and, uh, you know, a few friends uh, got together. We drove up to Crested Butte and we stayed with some friends who live up there and we went skiing for a day and just generally caught up and it was kind of a reunion. So it was a great time and it was great to see everybody and great to see old friends and nice to be back in Colorado where I spent eight years. Uh, we had beautiful weather and there were, you know, the mountains were gorgeous and, uh, the skiing was good, but of course there was also a lot of heaviness. There was also a lot of sadness and emotional upheaval because when you get everybody together, as good as that is, uh, you also can't help but feel the absence of your departed friend. And, uh, you know, my friend was named, his name is Dave and, uh, we always called him Davo and Davo wasn't there. And that's still hard to process for me. It's hard to believe. And at the same time, I say that he wasn't there. And what's strange about that is that I think it's inaccurate. Uh, or I inaccurate in the ultimate sense, in the most important sense, uh, you know, or the most real sense, I should say. Uh, the fact is that I believe that at the deepest level, he actually was there. You know, he's certainly there in his four-year-old son who shares his DNA and was made from him and looks just like him. And he was there in his wife and he was there in all of his friends, myself included, and I think that he lives on somehow in all of us in a very real way, you know, and, and not in a pie in the sky, supernatural way and not in a, like a cloud city family reunion kind of way, you know, like a, a real way, like a Ben Kenobi or a John Lennon kind of way, you know, and I don't know. It's, it's hard to talk about and especially to talk about it with any kind of authority. And, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know exactly how to handle any of it. And I don't, uh, have a perfect understanding of it to say the least. Uh, and, and, you know, like, what can I say that hasn't already been said when it comes to this stuff? You know, I don't know how to handle it other than to just keep going and to try to, uh, stay positive. <laughs> you know, I, I find that my thought patterns with it tend to be circular. That's the big thing. When I try to put my mind to it, uh, or I find myself thinking about it, I, you know, I'll get bummed out and I'll get sad and I'll say to myself, uh, you know, Christ, this is so lame. It's all so final and so depressing and so heavy, and there's no way to spin it or make it otherwise. And that's just the way that it is. And I'm always going to be sad about it. And I just sort of have to accept living under the burden, uh, of this sort of permanent melancholy. And so I'll say that, but you know, eventually what will happen is that I'll wind up getting back to the person I've lost, uh, to the person or the people that I'm missing and what I'll wind up saying to myself then is, well, what would they want me to do? You know, would they want me to sit here and wallow? Would they want me to remain stuck uh, in a state of negativity in some kind of bottomless existential quagmire? And of course, the answer to that is absolutely not. And, and in fact, they would want the exact opposite. And so that's how it almost always ends in my mind. It always, you know, it always comes back to me thinking about them and then saying to myself, enough, you know, just carry on. And that's it. This is what happens. You know, it's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to everyone I know. And for those who went, for, you know, who've gone before me, friends and family members in particular, uh, you know, they want me to live my best life. So I try to do that. And, uh, and don't let, you know, don't lose your sense of humor, whatever you do. I think that's fundamental. You know, I think it's a hero's way to go at the very least. Because, you know, I think that the circumstances of life when I, when I really try to boil it down, 
uh, are absurd in so many ways. Just the fact that we're here and we don't even really know where here is. You know, we live in like on a watery ball in something that we decided to call the universe. And my suspicion is that we know relatively little about the universe. And, uh, yeah, we live on a ball and we know people and we work in offices and we have the internet and we get caught up in the minutia of our lives and we tweet about it and we go grocery shopping and we listen to the radio and we watch television and we eat at Subway and we watch the Subway commercial on television and we sing along to the $5 footlong song. <laughs> like, like we just, what are we doing? You know, like when, and why is this happening? And of course I don't know how to answer those questions adequately uh, and the mystery of it is, is, is so large and so mind-bendingly strange in so many ways that I can't help but find it a bit absurd. And then that's where I end up, or that's one of the places that I end up. Just thinking that our circumstances as human beings are completely ridiculous. We are a ridiculous species on a ridiculous watery ball. So, you know, recognizing that, uh, you know, you say to yourself, well, I guess we're all in the same boat. So we should try to be uh, kinder to one another and more patient. And uh, we should tell more jokes. How's that for a positive message? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So that's all I got. Uh, why don't we turn now to my conversation with Claire Bidwell-Smith, and we'll see if she might be able to shine a little light on all of this stuff and help us get to the bottom of the mystery of our existence. Okay, how are you doing? I'm good. You're good? I'm excited to be here. And you're, what, 18 weeks pregnant? I am. How is that <laughs> feeling? Are you, are, you, are you nauseous? Do you have a sense of boy or girl? Uh, I'm fearful that it's a boy. <laughs> you are? honest, yes. Do you have a feeling? No, I don't. I just feel like it's going to be a boy because I'm scared that it will be. And so, yeah. And you like little yeah. girls. I do. I have a little girl already and she's so sweet and, you know, they're they're kind of more docile and 
when they're young. When they're young, yeah, she's going to be a nightmare in like fifteen years. Right, right, right. You know, we, you know, I, I think about that too. I like the idea of two little girls, mm-hmm. and then you see like a little boy at the playground versus like a little girl at the playground, and it's a different situation. Right. Like there's more energy. Yeah, the girls are so emotional, but the boys, um, they're so, like, rough, and I don't want to play with trucks and stuff. <laughs> I just don't. I don't want to do it. So are you battling any nausea or anything? Do no, you, I'm good now. No morning just sickness? battling being pregnant. Yeah. In yeah. general. Uh, well, that's exciting. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, and then the book, yeah. which is now imminent, at the time that we're talking, is imminent. Two weeks. Um what's your feeling right now? Are the reviews are coming in? I mean, are you nervous? Are you, are you, has it been such a long process that you're like, you know, fuck it, whatever happens happens. Or are you like, what's your state? I'm really excited actually. Um, you know, it feels like it's been really long. I kind of feel like I've been pregnant and I'm finally like my due date is almost here and I'm going to have a scheduled C-section on February 2nd and the book's coming out. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I know in the publishing world that I've been kind of fast-tracked. I mean, I only sold the book in January of 2011 and I had six weeks to finish it when I sold it and I had six chapters to write. <laughs> so I wrote six chapters in six weeks. So wait, how much of the book did you have done when you went out with it? You, like Usually with I nonfiction, s- it's a proposal, isn't it? But with yeah. a memoir, sometimes people just write the full thing. And I sold it based on a proposal in three chapters. Oh, wow. And I had nine chapters written out of 15. Okay. So then I had six weeks to write the last six chapters. <laughs> but that's a good that's a good kick in the ass, right? Yeah, I mean, I was not going to not do it. Right. You, know, you get a publishing deal with Penguin, and you're like, yes, I will write six chapters in six weeks, no matter what it takes. And so how did you work during that six-week period? Like, what was your... Were you just constant, or did yeah, you... Yeah, I mean, I had a job, and I had a kid, and a husband, and I just worked all the time. I wrote all the time. That was it? Yeah. I went to the coffee shop a lot. But that was your only job, you're saying? No, I had a job job, too. You did? Mm-hmm. I was working as a grief counselor for hospice. Oh, right. So then I went... Just an easy... Just a mindless... <laughs> really easy job. Requires none of you. <laughs> exactly. Just working in hospice. So, yeah. Toddler, hospice job, and then do some writing. Oh, Jesus. That was good. But it, keeps you, but it keeps you focused, though. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I really work well when I'm busy. When I have nothing to do, I just get kind of apathetic and right. sorry for myself and get nothing done. Right. Well, no, and it's like... Uh, I feel like, you know, when I look back on my like college years, I got the most, I got the, I think I got the best grades, the semesters that I took the most classes. Yeah. And it was like those semesters where I took like two classes where I was just, <laughs> I couldn't get anything done. Exactly. You know, so it's that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting issue where, uh, you know, writing it seems to, you know, I, I feel like it requires such discipline. I always like say like, you have to live like a soldier monk. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it kind of feels like. You know, the level of intense, you know, intensity. Uh, that writing a book requires in terms of uh, work time and carving it out and being disciplined about it and kind of fighting for it. It never comes, it never comes easily. Uh, but then you have a kid or multiple kids mm-hmm. and you're trying to write. And unless you're like of means uh, and you can just do it somehow, you know, uh, it's, it's a huge battle and it complicates things. I think that's a safe uh, assessment. That's a kind assessment. That's a kind. Yeah. So, I mean, like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Like, I mean, you love to write, you want to write books. Like that's what you at least partially want to do, but then you also want to be a mom. Like, how do you reconcile that? It's a really good question. Um, I think that becoming a mother has been the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of being a writer as well, but it's also been the best thing I've ever done for my writing career. I I feel like it just really kicked my ass. Um, my husband and I both wrote 
books in our first year of parenting. And I think we were just so panicked about having become parents, like, oh, God, this wasn't what we meant to do. Like, right, this right. is not the life we were going to be living. We were going to be writers and hip and living in cities and yeah. you know, going out with our friends, and now we're dealing with diapers and spit up, and we've got to get out of this. Yeah, <laughs> so we right. just wrote like crazy. Huh. Um, Greg was getting up at like 5 in the morning to write before she woke up, and then I was writing late into the night. And you know, I sold I sold my book a year and a half after she was born, and I just felt like out of panic. You know? well, but like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, you know, a there's like all the the kind of the cliche trite stuff about having children and how much joy they bring and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. it's just it's it does bring a level of focus mm-hmm. when you have this child that you have to care for. No, definitely, she made my life so much more meaningful. I think like I remember the summer before I had her just kind of sitting around on the deck and drinking a beer at two in the afternoon and being like, Oh, I should really go do some writing and just kind of not having to do anything with my life. And then she was born and suddenly I had this person I was responsible for and I needed to be a person that she could look up to and provide for her. And, um, so yeah, it was great in that sense. It makes, yeah, it, it, it adds more than it takes away, but it's also so hard. I mean, I just, I kind of like buck against parenthood on a regular basis, you know, yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. a really hard time with it. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm dealing with it too. So it's like, uh, it's, it changes things, but I think for the better, mm-hmm. you know, on, and, and like overwhelmingly. So if you, if I were to actually sit down and write down, you know, on balance, mm-hmm. it makes writing harder, but writing was never easy to begin with. Right. Like what, what is it? What's it if it's a little bit harder? You know, it was never easy. Uh, I've really learned how to write in these short bursts and like fleeting moments. Oh my God, I've got 10 minutes before she wakes up and I'll literally bust out like 500 words, you know, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I could never have done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about your book mm-hmm. and like, just so listeners get a sense, uh, you know, I, if you can just like summarize what it's about, tell people a little bit about the story that you're telling in the book so that we have some, some context. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a memoir called the rules of inheritance and, um, it's kind of a coming of age story. Both of my parents got cancer when I was 14 at the same time they were diagnosed and, um, I was an only child and my mother died when I was 18 and then my father when I was 25. So I just kind of had these 10 years of roller coasters of hospitals and chemo and death and, um, it really shaped who I am and kind of how I moved forward into my adulthood. And my parents were kind of interesting people to begin with. My mom was this kind of very eclectic artist who was very beautiful and she lived in New York for a long time and she was just really kind of fabulous and exciting. And my father was 57 when I was born and he'd been in World War II and he'd been at POW and he'd then gone on to kind of travel the world and run a bunch of businesses and was just a really interesting guy. And so they were kind of... He's like the most interesting man in the world. You know, the guy from <laughs> the Dos Equis commercial. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know that commercial. Oh, okay. I think that's Dos Equis. I, you know, I'm, I'm reaching. But it sounds interesting. No, yeah. Truly. They were like a really strange couple. He was 17 years older than her. So he had this like kind of fabulous, younger, beautiful wife. And, um, and then there was just me sitting in a corner with my nose buried in a book throughout my childhood until, until they both got cancer. And then I got really angsty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so that's a tough age anytime, anyway. Yeah, it was, but you know, and it just kind of led me on to just, it just changed everything about who I was. My friends were going through kind of normal experiences of adolescence and your friends were getting like pimples. Right. Yeah. And everything about my life was so heightened and there was so much at stake all the time. And, um, and it made me just kind of live on a different level than everybody I knew. And then it carried over into relationships and choices I made and colleges I went to and just kind of everything I did. And, um, and it took me a long time to come out of it. You know, I like went really deep into some dark places and then I kind of finally came out of it. 
And that's what the book is about. Okay. Now what about like, you know, when you look back at yourself at 14 and, uh, you know, your mother's diagnosis was first. My father's. Oh, your father's was. Okay. He found out that he had prostate cancer, which isn't totally a big deal because he was in his 70s and it was and pretty common. Like most men yeah, eventually so, wind up getting prostate cancer, right? Yeah. And he was going to have a prostatectomy and then, you know, do some radiation and it was going to happen. And then my mom the whole time had all this pain in her side. She thought maybe she had an ulcer or something. And she goes in finally right before my dad's surgery and find out, finds out that she has stage four colon cancer. Ugh. And so we kind of like... They dropped everything having to do with my dad. My mom went right into surgery and chemo and all this stuff. And then my dad didn't end up having the prostatectomy because he wouldn't have been able to care for my mom as well because she needed a lot of care after her surgery. And so it kind of went on like that. Oh, God. Now, when you look back at yourself prior to this uh, happening and what kind of kid you were, and then you look at yourself in like the, you know, the immediate years afterwards, like, I mean, how big of a shift was there in your personality and in your behavior? Do you know what I'm saying? Did you internalize most of it or was it like all of a sudden you went from being, you know, Claire in the corner with her nose in a book to like angsty Claire, mm-hmm. you know, That's rebelling and doing interesting stuff. Like how big of a shift was there? In some ways I kind of think I was the perfect person to have this happen to. I was already really, um, moody and angsty and kind of nostalgic and strange. You know, I was an only child. I just spent my whole childhood reading and, you know, hanging out by myself and entertaining myself. And so in some ways it was just a good compliment to like have to go through something really hard. It almost felt like I was always going to, um, if that makes any sense. Did you, I mean, you had a sense as as an only child that like, it's just me. I mean, like as a, just as like an only child experience, uh, is it common? Do you think for only children to look at their parents and think to themselves, it's just me and something eventually is going to happen to my parents and then it'll be just me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And I think I had that more so just because my dad was already so old, you know, they were both older. I mean, my mom was 40, which isn't young when I was born. Um, so I kind of always had that sense anyway, and then it became really imminent. Um, and so it was lonely and kind of scary. I can imagine isolating. Yeah. So who did you turn to? Like, did you, could you talk to your folks or, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, I mean, you know this now, you work as a grief counselor, you know that there's like the, the emotional uh, content of uh, grief and uh-huh. the experience from, from start to finish. Not that there's even really a finish, but you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like, uh, it's difficult and it's complex. And even people who have like a really healthy parent-child relationship or person-to-person relationship of some kind, you get into these waters and it's just like it's very difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's extremely difficult to talk about. That's one of the things that I've always found with grief and funerals and stuff is that like, it just leaves me, uh, grasping for something good to say. There's mm-hmm. nothing there. It's, it's so hard to find the right language. It is. It's a language uh, for me more than anything else. It's a challenge of, of language. Mm-hmm. If that yeah, makes any yeah, sense, makes how to sense. articulate the Sometimes experience. There's nothing to say too. There just isn't. Right. You know? Right. But of course, like as a writer and as this like, you know, I guess I'm a talker, uh, to at least to a degree. I want so badly to be able to articulate it. I want to find the words. And I, and that's where my writing came in. You know, I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about it. Certainly not my peers. None of them were going through anything similar. Um, and my mom, she'd always been this really approachable, honest person. And we could talk about anything, but she could not talk about this. And she tried to pretend like everything was really normal. And so while we could talk about anything else that was hard or scary to talk about, we couldn't talk about the idea of either of them dying. And so we didn't. Okay. Um, 
I wasn't even there the night she died because we were all in so much denial about it. Oh, what? Where were you? Um, I was with a boy. Um, fateful decision. That was another thing. Boys and writing were kind of what I threw myself into. Um, boys and sex seem kind of like the opposite of death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I guess in some ways they are, or sex is at least. Yeah. Um, and so that was that became really appealing because it was the same time anyway, my adolescence, and I was kind of blooming as a sexual person. And so, yeah, boys were great. They were a great distraction. And then really angsty, terrible poetry. <laughs> Do you were, still have it? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm an archivist. I have everything. Yeah, you are an archivist. You blog. Like, you're really good about, like, preserving, <laughs> yeah, you know, a record, everything. Yeah, everything. Okay, so... Um, did you feel in the, you know, after your mother passed away, did you feel badly about not having been there or was it just kind of like, I was a wreck, a complete utter wreck. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. The night she died, I was on my way to her and there was this guy that I've been going to college with that I had this like, you know, kind of long relationship with where I was really in love with him and he wasn't with me at all. Where'd you go to college? I went to a little tiny liberal arts college called Marlboro up in Vermont. Okay. 250 students on a little mountain. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was fucked up. It's like a monastery. (laughs) Was it co-ed? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. That must have gotten... The dorms were co-ed. That must have been, I mean, just 250. That's very insular. Yeah. It was... It was... And everybody was like a weird artist or musician. It was horrible. We were... Uh, Oh, God. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I fled straight to New York City after that just to get the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... So there was this guy that I stopped to see instead of going straight to her at the hospital. Okay. And um, ended up staying the night there. My dad called in the middle of the night and told me she was gone. Ugh. And so that, it took me years to get over. Years. Okay. So how did you process it eventually? Um, like, I didn't for a long time. I was, I was, I don't know. I was really drowning in grief for a really long time. Um, my book is set into, it's, my book's kind of written in a, in a different way. I didn't want to write the typical memoir, the kind of, here's my childhood, here's the traumatic thing that happened, here's the end. So it's written in the five stages of grief, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages. So the very first section is denial, and then um, anger, bargaining, um, depression, acceptance. And each section of my book has three chapters, and they're all nonlinear. So in the very first chapter, you see me at 18 when my mom dies. The second chapter, I'm 14, and they both get cancer. We're all kind of in denial about that. And then the third chapter, I'm 25, and my dad is getting sick again. Um, So, you know, in terms of that, I just kind of go through all the grief in the book, all the different kind of ways you can do it. I kind of wanted to have a commentary on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's. Yeah, are you? so are you pro-Kubler-Ross? You know, I am, but um, I think that people get really hung up on it. Uh, I'm, I'm totally straight from your original question, but we'll get back to it. Yeah, we, we can loop. Um, you know, I, as a grief counselor, I worked in hospice for the last five years, and so I counseled families after their loved one died, and everybody's hung up on these five stages. You know, I don't think I'm doing them right. Um, I, I, like, missed one. I don't get what the bargaining stage is. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm terrible with shit like that. Yeah, but everybody, everyone still holds on to them, though. They would yeah. come to me with them, and they'd say, tell me how to do this. Because it's like a guide. People right. people want, like, a they map. They cling to these stages. They want a map, yeah. And there's no right way to do them. And I wanted to show that in my book, and I wanted to show how nonlinear they are and that you can you know, have a little anger here and then some denial there and bargaining and just kind of do them at all different times and different places in your life and kind of through your grief process. So I think the book ends up being a really good example of that. Yeah. Okay. So finish the story though, just before we lose that thread of like how you eventually worked through, you know, the guilt or whatever. I mean, I assume you were feeling guilty for not having been there. Yeah, there was a lot of guilt. Um, and I kind of feel like I worked through it 
using almost other stages, like using bargaining and using anger. After my mom died, I ended up in a really um, kind of terrible relationship for six years with a man. We lived in New York together. We both drank way too much. Um, this is all in the book. And, and I was just really, I was depressed. I was angry. I was really scared. I didn't know how to get out of that relationship or any of the feelings I was in. How old was this guy? He was just a couple years older than me. Okay. You said so, a man. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was thinking like I older. He is now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was a boy but, back then. You um, made him a man. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, so I feel like I just went, I, I ran the gamut of emotions and of grief in order to kind of get through it. And, and that is one of my favorite things that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about is just the only way to get through it is to do it, to be in it. You have to really sit in it. The more, the more you avoid it, it just kind of builds up inside. Like with everything, it seems like. Yeah, You know, absolutely. big stuff or substance abuse or grief or totally. just life in general. You have to sit in it. You do. You <laughs> There's no to, avoiding it. You, you have know? to walk through the pain. Right. Um, I had a client, you know, last year and he, he came to one of my grief groups and his wife had died 11 years ago and he just never grieved for her. He lost a daughter. Or, I mean, he had a small daughter when he lost the wife. And he just didn't have time. He just couldn't, and he couldn't deal with it. But 11 years later, he's like, it's all still there. So how do you grieve? <laughs> okay, because I mean, like, no, I, I can tell you, like, just in my personal experience, like, I lost one of my very, very best friends last year. Mm. And I felt like I grieved. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, there are times where I'm like, and I'm, and I'm still grieving. I think, you know, you, know, you never stop officially grieving or mm-hmm. something. Um, but I feel fairly good about my ability to process death and at least live with it. You know, am I missing something? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, am I in denial? Like, do you know what I'm saying? This is what I'm trying to drive at is that like, you know, I I don't want to belittle in any way that experience or the pain of it or the difficulty Mm -hmm. of it. And, uh, it can sometimes mess with your head where you think like, if you're doing okay, or if you're making it through the day, or if you're living with the idea that like, look, my friend would not want me to you know, exist in a bummer. He would be kicking me in the ass and saying, get on with it. Mm-hmm. You know, time is short. And that's sort of how I think about it. Am I in denial? No, I think, I think there's just as many ways to grieve as there are to live your life. I mean, okay. Yeah. Um, everyone does it differently and it depends on who you are and who you lost and your relationship with them. Um, I mean, I think about Darren Strauss and his book, half a life. And he talked about his, his pressure to grieve, you know, yeah, the performative, so, the yeah. performative. I think about that all the time. It's fascinating. You know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. You feel like yeah. a, this is what I, I need to be doing this mm-hmm. because this is what grieving people do. And totally. It, I didn't cry for like almost a year after my mother died. I, and I don't know why I, I still don't know why. And I just I think maybe I was in shock and I was numb. And I kept, I kept saying this phrase. I kept waiting for the knife to slide in. I was like, I'm waiting for it to hit me. And it just didn't, it started to hit me finally. Um, when it did, I cried all the time. <laughs> once it hit, once it hit. <laughs> once it hit. But you know, like I'm actually quite good at this. <laughs> it's just different for everybody. Some people might, you know, have a completely sad and, and tearful reaction from the get go, or they may never cry. Or but and then this is the other thing. Or, like, let me ask you this: when the knife, you know, to use your turn of phrase, when the knife finally slides in and you finally start to get uh, emotional about the loss. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a self-aware person. I don't know if you're like as neurotically self-aware as I am, but like, did you consciously think I'm crying now? This yeah, is what it, you know what I mean? that's how I feel. Cause like when I cried, um, after I lost my buddy, 
I'm almost positive. I was like, I'm crying. This is what I, this is good. Mm-hmm. I'm letting it go. This is healthy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, definitely. And then it becomes this thing where you're almost like outside of yourself, watching yourself and like grading yourself or something. I think people are really hard on themselves when it comes to grief. Everyone thinks they should be doing it a certain way. And they're very conscious of how they're, how they're performing and how they're behaving. Right. And then everyone else around them too is constantly kind of setting these limits and these, these boundaries for when and how long you should grieve. Oh, it's six months now. You should start seeing someone now that your husband of 35 years is gone, you know, like, you know, and so I just think there's a lot of forces at work that make us very self-conscious about how we grieve. Yeah. And like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, when do you move on? Mm-hmm. When's it okay? Mm-hmm. When's it okay to feel okay? Right. I remember, I, I remember one of the times I cried the hardest was when I, I dropped out of school after my mom died for about a year. And then I remember, what'd that, you do? Did you go home? I went home. I, you know, worked in a cafe and drank a lot and went to Europe and just dicked around, <laughs> took a Greyhound from Atlanta to San Francisco and back, you know, yeah. just it's, typical stuff. Yeah. A Greyhound from Atlanta to San Francisco, 56 hours straight on the bus. Oh my God. Only when you and some Malanka. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> only when you're like 20 years old, right? can you do only. that? <laughs> I mean, that is like the, can you imagine what that would be like now? That would kill me now. Oh yeah. <laughs> Greyhound bus, like a, a six hour Greyhound right? bus from LA to San Francisco would be too much. <laughs> totally. Um, so, but when I, I remember the day that I, I um, went back to college crying harder than ever because I felt like I was moving forward in my life. My yeah. mom wasn't there. Um, and I, I felt like I was moving on from her, from her and from it and from the grief. And so, yeah, there's so many different ways to do it. Okay. So I didn't screw it up. No, I'm there's doing no o- right I'm, way to do I'm it. I'm doing okay. Yes. You were doing great. <laughs> and, and like, uh, what about, uh, like a sense of humor? Yeah, you have to have a sense of humor. God, you should have heard some of the jokes we made in hospice. It was horrible. Yeah, okay. The nurses and doctors all of us sitting around, we used to make some terrible jokes. You have to. You have to. And I feel like, too, like I think I've even talked about uh, this on the show, is that like, you know, goal in life is to maintain a sense of humor at the hour of my death. That's like the, great. the ultimate goal in life. And like, I, I, I steal that from someone. I think I read it in like the little Proust questionnaire in the back of Vanity <laughs> Fair once. But somebody said that and I was like, that is it. Like that is to me the only real, like I, it, it contains all other goals. Do you, you know what I'm saying? To. We're all going to die. Yeah. All of us. But I mean, like it, it's a, it's a tall order because it when, when order. it really does, it's easy to say now when I'm like in my mid thirties and like knock on wood, you know, like hopefully right. a long way off. But like when it comes down to it, will I have the, will I have it together enough to be like Oscar Wilde and like crack a joke <laughs> about the curtains? Like, you know, like I, I, I hope for that. You yeah. know, and I feel like, um, some people can do that. It doesn't have to be, I mean, as a, as someone who works in hospice, um, you've obviously been around a lot of people dying. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen a lot of different ways to die. Mm-hmm. Correct. I have. Have you been around somebody or, I mean, can you tell any stories about people who have done it really well, <laughs> you know, or is everybody just sort of like, like, what's the experience like when you try to like add up all the sum total experiences that you've had with it? Um, you know, I think it's it's different across the board, but also in dying, especially from an illness, there's kind of a, a stage of kind of shutting down and letting go. So at the very end, you're not so much even talking as making jokes or anything. Um, but there's definitely some ways to approach death with humor to like know that you're going to die and to still do it in a in a fashion that's um, dignified. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I saw a lot of people early on in their stages of death where they they knew they had six months or they knew they had a year and they still wanted to be themselves and wanted to have fun and have their friends and family over and talk about you know funny things and not just not just mourn yeah their life. So. Wow, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's like when you have when you feel like you have a time limit 
I mean, and everybody has a time limit, but when it's really compressed and you're really conscious of it, it can probably throw people into, um, I mean, it can throw you into a lot of different states, but I imagine on the, on the more positive side of the ledger, like if it could probably make you like intensely like present, mm-hmm. I feel like that word's overused. I feel a little touchy feely, <laughs> very present, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's like when you know that you, the clock is ticking and you're like, I got six months, like today becomes maximally important. Nothing like that to make you present. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It forces you in, but <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's, it sort of sucks that it should take something like that to do that. Yeah. I feel like it's always that case though. You know, it's always when you lose somebody or some, you know, horrible tragedy happens that you have this moment where you realize how, how amazing every single day is and just that we're here and hanging out. Okay. So this brings me to another, um, topic, like a related topic and something that I actually, um, you know, you said in your book trailer, I watched your book trailer where you, uh, you know, you're being interviewed or you're talking on camera and you're talking about how, when you look at a grieving person, you see beauty because you see how much they love the person that they lost. Mm-hmm. And that clarified something for me about, cause I've been to a, a several funerals. I've, I've, I, you know, I haven't lost anyone in my immediately, you know, my immediate family, thank goodness. Um, and I'm very superstitious about knocking on wood. <laughs> uh, but I've been around, you know, in my childhood, um, just witnessed like a lot of tragic death, mm-hmm. um, or at least too much for my, you know, taste. And, uh, what I've always found though, and this is sort of odd is that I've always felt unusually good at funerals and I felt <laughs> bad about feeling unusually good, but that made me realize why I felt so good is because you're, you're around all these people who are like open wounds and they mm-hmm. all really love the person who died. It's an amazing moment. And, and, yeah. And like, and they're emanating it. Mm-hmm. It's an unguarded moment and it feels good. As sad as it feels, it feels almost good to feel that sad. Mm -hmm. And like, I am sometimes hesitant to say that because, uh, I don't want to seem callous. No, I think that's a great thing to say. I love that you said that. Um, I guess in a similar vein, I, after my mom died, I just found myself attracted to all these people who had been through horrible tragedies. (laughs) You're like, Oh, (laughs) I I know you. Everyone that I was kind of felt connected to or drawn to, it always turned out that something awful happened. Even when you didn't know it prior. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just the energy. Right. Yeah. And, um, and it's the same thing. It's like, they kind of have this different level of living, you know, that you do, I think in the moments of a funeral, you kind of, you are, you're very present. You're very kind of like raw and you're not, you're not wrapped up in your bills or, you know, the grocery list or, you know, what's going on at your kid's preschool it, or whatever. It goes away. Care. It disappears. It goes away. It's incredibly liberating. Oh yeah. And okay. I mean, not to make this too much about me, but I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's your I, yeah, right. <laughs> That's like in my therapy session, but no, it's like, uh, I remember after my uh, good buddy died last year, coming back from his, uh, you know, being uh, away for a few days and going to his service and everything else, and just like this, m- you know, maximally emotional experience. And then I come home, and I'm not a terrific sleeper. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, I'm not a terrific sleeper, uh, and I don't get a lot of hours of sleep a night. For a month after that, or like you know, three weeks to a month, I slept like a bear. Every night. Because you just didn't care about all the usual stuff it, that you're worried yeah, about. Easily. Mm-hmm. Like I would just go to bed and I would sleep and I would wake up feeling like wonderful, you know, and then yeah. eventually the, I cycled back into my old patterns. But, you know, <laughs> no, I, I, I think- noticed that as like a, as like a um, piece of, you know concrete evidence of how, you know, how there's something had shifted or we you know what I'm saying. No. Yeah. One of the things that I found really confusing when my parents were sick and when my mom died and eventually my dad, and that I didn't, I had a hard time talking about with anybody because I felt really guilty about it 
was I felt this like wild freedom that, um, exactly that of just not caring about the minutia and not caring about the usual things that stressed me out. So like in high school, my mom's cancer came back at some point in my senior year. I was like, fuck, I don't care about my senior comp paper. Yeah. I'm not going to write that thing. You know, I'm off to the hospital. I'm going to smoke some cigarettes on the way and just like listen to, you know, the cranberries. What right can there. you tell me? And, um, yeah. And so, but it was like this really exciting feeling of like, God, all this stuff in my life that I'm always so wrapped up in, it doesn't matter. Yeah. None of it matters. And it was great. It was so liberating, but I felt really guilty about it and I didn't talk to anybody about it. And I felt like I had to be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't do my senior comp paper. And I'm, Oh, I feel so bad. And I didn't at all, (laughs) you know, and the same thing in college. When I, when I dropped out of college after my mom died, I was like, this is really kind of awesome. You know, (laughs) I was like, I'm going to go wait tables and and like, and like get a fake ID and go on a ground. Focus on what's important for God's sakes. This education thing (laughs) is overrated. Totally. But, and I remember too, when my dad died, when I was 25, it was the same thing. And, um, all my friends were kind of dealing with this like post-college career crisis. And, and I was like, really, I'm going to the Philippines. I'm going to go shark diving and I'm going to like, you know, I'm just going to do stuff that I'm with. I had always been afraid to do that doesn't matter anymore. Cause nothing matters. Did it ever put you at a distance from people in your life because they weren't going through something similar or did you ever like look down your nose at them and be like, you're so focused on so much bullshit. And did you feel annoyed by it when like you're dealing with like, maximum existential quagmire. Yeah. I mean, that's why I felt like I ended up being attracted all the time to people who were kind of living on the same energy level. Right. Um, that makes sense. But then we all just got each other in terrible trouble. We were all like, fuck it. We could die today. Let's let's go do that. You You almost need somebody who's like totally removed from grief to like hang out with. Yeah. It took me a long time, um, to kind of learn how to care about stuff like bills and, um, so how do you do that? Greg, my husband, does it for me. He does. Okay. <laughs> so you outsource that. Um, but you know, now that I have a kid and I've got more at stake and I have things, it, it really grounds me. But for a long time, I had a hard time kind of just, you know, oh, who cares if I've got a $12,000 credit card debt? You know, like, whatever. What? That's um, weird? Yeah, so, Am I supposed to care about that? Um, so, you know, <laughs> getting married and having a child and all those things that just gave me a lot to care about right now. and. So yeah. I just didn't have anything for a long time. So, but it was kind of great in a way. It was so yeah. liberating. Well, but I mean, and you know what is that? Look, there are practical considerations that you have to tend to in life. And so I don't want to pretend otherwise, but it's also totally defensible, uh, to say that that stuff is bullshit mm-hmm. and that it doesn't really matter in the gra- in the grand scheme of things, you know? And it's like, I guess it's about trying to find some sort of balance in between the two, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know, sitting here right now, like, I don't know if like. I think it should tilt pretty heavily in the direction of it doesn't matter. <laughs> it should, but it just doesn't. You know, we get so caught up so easily. Yeah. We just do. And then it takes these big moments, you know, like a tsunami or something. Like Why? a tsunami to like remind us that. It frustrates me so much. Yeah. Like not only with like other people, but with myself. Mm-hmm. Like why is it so damn hard to keep focused on what's important? I don't know, Brad. <laughs> I don't, don't, don't have, have the answer. Yeah. I get really bored sometimes when my life is too, um, like, okay, when nothing terrible is happening. It's like, God, this is really boring. Everything's kind of in place. need to raise the stakes here. Yeah. Yeah. I can see. Um, I feel that. I feel that way sometimes, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. You've had, obviously, a much more intense experience. But, like, do you feel like, you know, you talked about, like, alcohol and, like, medicating the pain, like, mm-hmm. after, you know, your mother uh, died and, and, I guess, after your father died as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, did it intensify as it was with with losing your dad, the drinking intensified? Oh, yeah. It did. Okay. So, 
there's that. And then you said boys and sex and all that kind of stuff. Um, did you find that you were using those things to maybe create the kind of drama or stakes that we just discussed? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I, I did a lot of traveling too. That was my other thing. And I did a lot of traveling alone. And I felt like that was one of the things that intensified stakes. I love traveling alone. Yeah, it's great. So I, many people are afraid to do it. And, oh, yeah. You know, I prefer it that way. Sometimes, but it's yeah. so great. I, I like getting lost. I love it. Yeah. I like being disoriented. <laughs> Me too. It's great. <laughs> I like being very drunk in a place where I don't know, speak the language and I know nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one. That was one thing that kind of kept stakes high for me. Where did doing, you travel? I went all over. I went to Asia. I went to Europe. Um, I would just do random stuff, you know, like around the, the country, and it was really great. Like road trips, and yeah. And then you just meet people at like youth hostels, or yeah, yeah? definitely. I have one of the chapters that people are really responsive to in my book right now. Is it all centers around this trip that I was I was on in the Philippines. I was on a press trip as a travel writer, and and then I that's a good little you know, boondoggle. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And then I got had kids, and I don't do anymore. Well, that's you when they get older. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I was uh, I was on the Philippines, and I. I decided to stay longer after the travel, after the press trip ended. You know, we'd been in these five-star hotels and driven around in vans and stuff, and they show you the best of everything because they want you to write about it. And I was like, this is not going to work for Student Traveler magazine. I need, I need like, a good yeah. story. Yeah. So I found this little tiny island, literally, like, one mile by two miles called Malapasqua. And it's one of the um, only two places in the world where you can dive with thresher sharks. Thresher sharks are those sharks that have a tail like a scythe, um, like like the like the Grim Reaper. Um Comforting. Yeah. That's exactly. what you Because because their teeth, their razor sharp teeth just aren't frightening right? enough. Right. They, they actually, they, they use their tails to stun their prey. They hit them um, really hard with the tails and uh, then they eat them. Good. And so I decided I was going to travel out to that island by myself. And it was like an eight hour bus ride through the jungle and a, you know, third world country. It's totally Joan Wilder and <laughs> um, Romancing the Stone. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then I did and I, you know, I didn't have a plan along the whole way and, it's a fun chapter, but I, you know, I did stuff like that just to kind of keep things interesting and test your boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Did you dive with the sharks? Um, you have to read the book. I, I was uh, looking at it. I mean, you know, I get, can, we, can you give us any, I mean, obviously you, you survived. Okay. I survived. Okay. So, uh, so take me into your mid twenties, like take me to the point where, um, your father's illness, you know, reaches, uh, you know, it's prog- you know, progressively worse and you're now approaching 25. You've already lost your mother. Like, were you more prepared for this one? Is there, is there, yeah, it was totally different. Um, so I spent my early twenties in Manhattan, you know, bartending and going to the new school. And, um, then I moved out here to LA. My dad was in Orange County and he was, his health was taking a turn. His cancer had gone into remission after he did some radiation when I was 14, but started to come back in different places. And so I moved out here and I worked for um, a very fancy glossy magazine, which I also write about in the book and cannot name for legal reasons. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Um, And so I was working for this really fancy magazine and I was going to all these L.A. parties. Can you tell me what it rhymes with? (laughs) I would love to. Um, (laughs) Schmanity bear? No? (laughs) I can't say. Okay. Um, So... That was it, that was really kind of strange because at the same time my father I was going down to Orange County on the weekends and taking care of him and he was really declining and I had these two lives of kind of like Hollywood glitz and glamour and this failing relationship I was in and then my father and um, I finally quit the magazine in a lot of drama and went to take care of my dad and I really wanted to have a different experience with his death than I did with my mom and she 
when the doctors told her that there was nothing more they could do for her, she kind of panicked and she and my father, instead of kind of going on hospice, which is what was recommended to them at the time, they found some, um, some doctors up in DC who did like alternative research and last hope kind of surgeries and stuff. And she did a bunch of stuff that was never going to save her life, you know, and it just kind of made everything worse. And then, you know, she just ended up kind of dying without any of us facing it. And my father was different. He did not want to do that. When it, when it came time where the cancer was really progressing, he was like, I just want to go home and be at home and chill out and, and, you know, be present to this. And I wanted that too. So I, I took care of him in his little condo and it was really hard. You know, I was 25 years old and I was taking care of my, you know, aging, dying father. He had, he was wearing diapers at the time. I was like scrubbing his dentures at night. I was changing catheters. I mean, it was, it was intense. It was Whoa. stuff that like most people don't do until they're in their fifties and they're caring for their 80 year old parents or whatever. Right. Um, and I had helped my siblings. I have some half siblings from my dad's first marriage. They came out now and then to help out. And we had hospice. The hospice was amazing. The nurses. And the what is, what is hospice? Hospice is a service that helps, um, helps care for dying people. So okay. like in my dad's case, it's 24 seven, it's 24 seven. You can call them 24 seven. They have a nurse that comes, you know, every, every day or every other day, depending on what's needed. It's like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Magnolia. Yeah. Okay. They have, um, they have people who come out and like bathe the patient, which was, I was just so grateful to people like that. You know I mean? It's my father I had certain boundaries that I just like couldn't yeah. go with him. So it was so nice that there was somebody that would come and really bathe him and take care of him. And it takes a special person to do that job. It really does. I mean, goodness gracious. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah nurses too. And that there's a doctor that just comes right to the house. All your medications delivered to the house. Hospice is pretty great. Yeah. And then there's a grief counselor and there's a social worker and there's a chaplain and they work with the whole family to try to kind of make it the best experience possible. Yeah. None of which we did with my mom, you know, with my mom, it was just like, oh, let's do this last surgery and take out another two feet of her colon and like hook up a colostomy bag and like see what happens, you know? And, it was uh-huh. like, and none of us were dealing with it. My mom was out on morphine and, and then she just died. Um, but with my dad, it was great. We talked about it a lot. You know, he talked about his life. We got to sit around. I mean, it was hard to care for him, but, uh, I felt like I was getting the opportunity to, to do everything I wanted to do, to say the things I wanted to say. To, it's like you got a do over almost. I did. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and it was a really good death experience. I was holding his hand when he died. Um, I'd never seen a dead person. I saw him take his last breaths and, it was really peaceful and healing in a lot of ways. I mean, it was horrible. I missed him. It was so sad. But at the same time, there wasn't any regret that I had about when I lost my mom. I missed for years. I was just like, oh, I wish I had been there, you know, to take care of her more, to say goodbye to her, just to be with her in those moments. And I wasn't with my dad. I didn't have anything I regretted. But you know, I mean, God, it's, you can't be too hard on yourself. You were so young. I mean, do you ever, I mean, are you, do you have that perspective now? I do now. Okay. I mean, it's like, I didn't for a long time. I mean, I, and I don't even care what age you are. Like, I just think people, I mean, within reason, you have yeah, to, you have no. to be willing to give yourself a break. Like nobody knows how they're going to re- react, but especially when you're an adolescent, you're not even in, I mean, you're barely in college and mm-hmm. this is happening. I and mean, it's like, you, oh, don't, yeah. you don't have the, you don't have the emotional equipment. to. I even, understand all that. And yeah. I've forgiven myself a long time ago for all the things I once really, um, was hard on myself about, but yeah. Yeah. But my dad's death was, was great. If I can say that. And I know that sounds weird, but it just was, it was the best way a death can go. Like, like we talked about, it's going to happen to all of us. And it's, do nice you think, and, okay, so let me stop you. Do here. I think, yes, I think we're all going to die. <laughs> no, I, listen, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm a total realist, but who's that guy? I'm forgetting the name of the guy. I think his name's like Randy. He's like some sort of scientist. And 
he uh, he's really good at predicting the future, like predicting future trends. I'm forgetting his name. He's famous. Like Bill Gates is a fan of his. And okay. He's not like a quack, you know. But and, and he's got a track record. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you look back at what he predicted, and so he thinks that like we're like 35 years away from the singularity, and that like eventually they're going to be able to just like embed, you know, microscopic computers and like you know what I'm saying, like. He thinks it's possible. That we're not going to die? Yes. I think that sounds terrible. I, you know, I mean, I think so. I mean, I don't even know. But the thing is, is that, like, I honestly don't know what I think. I think it might sound terrible. I think there's something about the finality of death that makes life much more meaningful. Yeah, exactly. Nothing would be at stake if we didn't die. But it's like if you had the option. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, if it was presented to you and it was like you get to stay with your kids and, you know, you'd probably take it. I don't know. I think that depends on your belief system about what happens after you die. Yeah. See, I mean, I, some people might believe that there's a lot better stuff going on after this life. So why not just kill yourself? Well, I think some people might believe that you have certain lessons you need to learn and be here for a certain reason and kind of get through it in order to move on. I don't know. Like a video I, I, game. You know, I, you like I, know. I have so <laughs> you little get patience. get all your little mushrooms and stuff I, yeah. to the next one and have it be good. I have so little patience with like <laughs> Cloud City and dancing around in Cloud City. I think that's childish. Am I wrong? No, no. You're absolutely entitled to whatever you think yeah. or feel. But, but I mean, can't we just, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's silly to even talk about. What do I know? Maybe there is a cloud what city. What do you think happens when we die? Nothing. Nothing. I think it'll be just like when you're born, before you were born. You so you just, nothing happens. It's nothing. all over. It's all over. But I mean. Brad is done. Brad is done. But Brad isn't done. Because Brad and his DNA and his, like my daughter is me. Mm-hmm. Anybody that I've met or had a positive impact upon carries that. And then like, then you know, transfers it to other people. Like, Mm -hmm. I think you live on in different ways. And like, when I think about death, like the simplest way that I've ever heard it put is that, or in a way that makes sense to me is that like, there's clouds in the sky and you see them in the sky and they're like cumulo nimbi. Is Mm -hmm. that the plural? And there's like blue, there's patches of blue. Then there's cumulo nimbi and you see the clouds. And then that night there's a terrible thunderstorm and a heavy rain Mm -hmm. and you wake up the next morning and the sky is crystal blue. Hmm. You don't cry and say, Oh my God, the clouds died because you know that it rained and they're now in the river and in the grasses and in the trees. And like, it's all circular, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's an illusion that we are individual, you know, selves that are like finite right you know what i'm saying i feel like you're connected to everything like i'm made of hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen and some mm-hmm. combination thereof and like i find like total comfort in that yeah you know but i don't think i think that like you know it just sounds really really fishy to me and like very like emotionally convenient that there's going to be like a big reunion in the clouds and mm-hmm. that to no, me seems I childish i'm buying into that too yeah but you know what maybe Maybe there's like a, a dimension that I'm not aware of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like I, there has to be some humility too. Like I don't fucking know. Like mm-hmm. I, you can't know. Um, what about the idea of reincarnation? Yeah, but I mean, like the thing is, is that that's what I'm saying. Is that like you know, uh, I will be reincarnated if uh, I have grandchildren or if my daughter goes on to have a child. Mm-hmm. You know, like because literally, your daughter and my daughter, like you know, not. Your daughter is not made of me, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like your daughter, there's no separation. Mm -hmm. There's none. Like you have a child. Your daughter is you. Mm -hmm. It's not just like she came from you. Like she's made from you. Mm -hmm. She is you. No, I know. I feel very much. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well that's me. And then like, you know, I was a teacher for several years and like, I, you know, I'm, 
I'm, uh, you know, I, I realized that I had a very limited impact, but I think like, you know, <laughs> in some small way you teach somebody or like you work with somebody in hospice mm-hmm. and like, or you have a friendship, you know, and like they take, you, you live on through them in mm-hmm. that way. Like I believe in those, you know, sorts of exchanges. Um, like that's where I'm at with it right now. But yeah, like reincarnation, the circular nation, nature of things, um, that all makes total sense to me. Mm-hmm. And like, I just cannot... I cannot accept the idea that it should be anything that we should be afraid of. If everything that lives does it, like it seems a little bit absurd to be like terrified of it. It it should be sad. I think, you know, it's totally fine for it to be really sad and like, Hey, it's a little scary. You know, I'll admit that, but like, yeah, I think that's my kind of fundamental. The one thing I do believe is that it's not, we're not going to some fiery hell. Like there's not going to be some like scary, terrible thing that we're headed to, you know, no matter what we've done right, and not done in our lives. I, I don't, I just don't believe that. Um, I don't either. I mean, I've been, but who, I've been doing who a lot of research for this second book I'm working on and just about trying to figure out what happens when we die. And, um, some of it I've been delving into is some pretty, some pretty heavy Christianity. And, and you know, there's a guy who wrote a book called 23 minutes in hell. And he claims that he went to hell for 23 minutes, like kind of in the middle of the night. Well, no. And then there's the people who like saw the light and like embraced right. by the light and you know, but, um, you know, his ideas and his depictions of hell are really terrifying and really just awful. And I can't imagine kind of going around, going through my life, feeling like that that's a possibility for me or that that's where my parents might be. You know, according to him, my parents are definitely in hell, you know, yeah. just for the lives they lived and who Don't they were. Don't you love people like that? Yeah. Thanks, and, dude. And I just think like, you know, I saw him speak to a group of teenagers, no less, too. It was uh. really great. But, um, I, I definitely, that's like, there's not a lot I do know about what happens next, but there's things I, one thing I do know is I just really don't think we're going to a fiery dungeon. But yeah, exactly. And like, that's the thing. Like I, it it becomes a trap. I feel like, like an intellectual trap where you don't want to seem too sure about anything because like, you know, that becomes hubris. Mm Mm-hmm. But like at the same time, it's like, you know, we can rule some shit out, you know, like (laughs) that's what I get frustrated with. Let's like cross some things off the list. Like, you know, like I think we as like human beings, like we've gotten to the place where hopefully we can, we can say to ourselves that like, you know, highly, highly suspicious, these like, you know, cloud city visions, Mm -hmm. highly suspicious. And like the same with the hell, like you've even seen like the, you know, a lot of major churches, Sort of be like, oh, you know, we didn't really mean that. Right. You know, right. they sort of like drifted from that yeah, because, a little, yeah. yeah, because it's clearly like a cartoon thing. Like, you know, it's like middle ages. It's, to me, it seems medieval mm-hmm. and just like, and to tell that to children to oh, me is tantamount to abuse, which was told to me. Like I was a, as a Catholic, I was told that like, if I had sex before marriage, that was a cardinal sin mm-hmm. that God would not forgive you for. And you would burn in hell forever mm-hmm. with a demon lizard who had, right? a, you know, it's like, thanks. Totally. And thank, you know, good, you know, luckily. Why I, would you want to choose to go about your life believing in something like that? I just, I, I really struggle with it. Um, I mean, I, I really want to respect everyone's religious, religious viewpoints and, and where they're coming from. But I have a hard time understanding why someone would really choose to, to carry that around their, in their, in their lives. You know, to believe that around, about people around them and that gay people are going to hell or that, you know, just. Just based on what? Children because they hadn't accepted and Jesus into their hearts or whatever. You if know? you can show me some evidence that there is a demon lizard, and I mean like some irrefutable <laughs> evidence, the Bible doesn't cut it. Right. The Bible's crazy. The Old Testament is batshit crazy, and it doesn't take much to figure that out. Like I think a third grader could figure it out with a little help. 
And so it's like, okay, so scratch that off. That's not, that's not rock solid evidence. Mm-hmm. There's some good stuff in the Bible, but there's good stuff in a lot of books that have bad stuff in them too. You know, like it right. falls into that camp. So it's like, if someone could prove it to me in a way that seemed really, um, convincing, I'd be like, holy shit, what are the rules? I'll follow them. I don't want to go. <laughs> I know. But otherwise, you have all these people thumping their chest like they're convinced about something based on absolutely no evidence. And so I'm unconvinced and I'm, I'm thumping my chest about it <laughs> because the evidence is bullshit and I can see it. Am, am I hubristic? No, not at all. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I look at, you know, there's like... um an earthquake in, in Asia or something. And, and there are people in this country that believe that all the people who died are probably going to hell because they had not accepted Jesus into their lives. Fuck them. And, and you know, I just, I just think it's a really sad way to live. And yeah. I think it's a sad way to kind of go about the, your life and how you treat other people and view the world and sad for yourself. And I think it all comes out of fear, you know, that's right. It's a fear based way of living. It is. And then like, you know, like God is like, I've always said this, like God like lives, like he sees everything. He's watching you have sex. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's like he's Kim Jong-il. But all of this has to do with death. Like what, what would happen to religion if, if this Randy guy is right and there was no death anymore? What would happen to religion? Right. Like where there would be no heaven or hell to worry about anymore. Well, it's just like, you know, look, I think like religion, like the, the, the way that religion has always made sense to me is at the level of community and interpersonal relations and as like uh, providing an ethical framework that people can use to mm-hmm. figure out how best to live their lives. Yeah, I'm and all for to, that. Yeah, and I'm all for that. But it's like when you start to get into the supernatural, which is, you know, sky god, mm-hmm. and you start to get into like, you know, that's what I mean, for lack of a better word, know. up there somewhere, God who is looking out, and then it's like my God is better than your God, and this is the one true God. And really the only reason I believe in this particular God is, is a function of where I was born mm-hmm. by happenstance. Like I happen to be from the Southern United States or I happen to have been born in Pakistan or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And suddenly like, this is exactly, you know, there's just no flexibility of thought or even like, right. I don't know. It makes me crazy. People are afraid to question things. And I think it's, I think it comes from a big lack of communication. You know, I think we should talk about death a lot more. Yeah. Um, We should see it more. Yeah. Like not like cover it up and hide it all the time. Right. But not in like, but not in certain cultures, Mm -hmm. you know, like in India, there are people, I mean, it's all right right there in technicolor. Yeah. And so, you know, people have a different relationship with it in, you know, certain cultures. And um, in America, it's like, you know, you, if you see a funeral procession, mm-hmm. you know, with the headlights and the string of cars, that's about as close as you come. Absolutely. Unless you go to a funeral. One of, um, my, one of my favorite classes in grad school when I was getting my um, master's in psychology was a class on aging and dying. And she asked us to break into groups and just sit around and talk about what we believe happens when we die. And I was like, God, this is like the most refreshing thing I've done in years, you yeah. know, just to talk with strangers about what we all think happens. And I felt like a little kid. I was like, oh, my God, should we be talking about this? You yeah, know, I love that question. Great. Yeah, it I'd love great. to talk about it. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear anybody anybody's take and somebody who's had like a, you know, I, I remember knowing somebody in film school who died briefly. Like she, uh, she was like dead on the, you know, operating table at the hospital yeah. or whatever. And like, she remembered like floating up and like looking mm-hmm. down at herself and like seeing the doctors near death experience. Yeah. 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 There's something to that, I guess. I mean, who the hell am I to say? I mean, you think she'd make that up? Yeah. A lot of people talk about those. The, my favorite part of working on this new book is, is, when people ask me what I'm working on and talk about it. And then we just get into these huge yeah, conversations yeah. and it's so much fun and yeah. everybody has stuff to say. And everyone's like, Oh, have you read this book? Or let me tell you about this thing that happened to me or I saw a ghost once or whatever. And it's, so where are you at now with really all this fun. research? 
I am still completely in the dark. I just, not in the dark, but I'm uh, undecided. I've been seeing psychic mediums and taking Kabbalah classes and doing past life regressions. and Just for research for the book? Yeah. And, huh? It's uh, kind of cool, though. It's like a self-education. Yeah, it's been, well, I mean, the goal, it's kind of going to be a, a little bit of like a spiritual memory journey. Um, just trying to figure out what I believe happens What's it called? Next. That's untitled as of now. Untitled. After this, maybe. Um, and so I've been literally kind of, the goal is for me to figure out what I believe. Even if I believe that nothing happens when we die, I want to kind of come out of the journey with a belief about what happens next. Like where was, you know, what was I thinking when I was in utero? What was I thinking about? I don't fucking know. I went out to Sedona and did some pretty weird past life regression stuff. It was fun. What does that mean? Like, were you? That means I was hypnotized and taken back to my past lives. Who were you in the? In, it, was, it was always like, oh, I was Cleopatra. Oh, I was a, I was a princess. Uh, I was, I was, I was a singer. I was a female singer. Where? Um, in the Midwest, but then I became really famous. Of course. Um, and. It's yeah. never like, oh yeah, I was like a, I was a washerwoman and, uh, I was a, uh, I had a mule. But the weirdest part about this was this was all coming from me. I told this guy all of it. So while you were hypnotized. Yeah. And it's all recorded. Um, so it's pretty interesting. So you actually fell into hypnosis. I would say I was lightly hypnotized. Um, and it was interesting, especially as a writer, it was an interesting experience because I was aware that I was talking. I was aware of what I was seeing in my head. You know, he was like, like, what do you see? And I was like, I see an old stove. And it was like one of the first things I kind of saw. Did you see it? Do you, I re- did. Oh, do you yeah. remember it? Yeah, I remember. Like a, a pipe stove or whatever? Yeah, a different kind of stove than I'd ever really seen. Like one that has like fire in it or something. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it's like a little house. You're like Laura Ingalls Wilder, but you could croon. Yeah. It seemed like it was in the twenties or thirties. Okay. And and so it was really strange um, because in some ways I felt like I've written some fiction before and I felt like it was similar to kind of how you draw things up in your head, you know, for your characters. Yeah. And I just couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't. I still have no idea if I just made a bunch of shit up and said it out loud or if I was really seeing things from a past life. I could see. I mean, maybe it's circular, but it's like, uh, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe so. That would fit the circular thing. Mm-hmm. The world is a circle. We travel in a circular orbit. Mm-hmm. I like circles. Yeah. There's this whole thing about soul groups. We keep coming back with the same people. Oh, my God. I know. It's exciting. It's like <laughs> um, Wow. So uh, you don't know what you're thinking. How much more research you got to go through before you think, I mean, do you... At some point, you got to say, "Well, I don't know." I'm I gonna... think I'll be working on it for like another year, just kind of really. What, what else do you have planned? Like, if you've already been to like the the energy vortex at Sedona, like what's? I know. Um, God, that was fun. I found that I was pregnant right after that, so I have no idea what this poor baby is going to be like. She's going to come out singing. I have done the weirdest stuff with this baby. She's going to come out singing. You think it's a girl? Uh, let's yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Last weekend, my friend got married. Um, this place up near Santa Barbara and it's called point conception. Uh-huh. And it's, um, it's the place where most native American cultures believe it's the entry and exit place for all souls that come in into and out of the world. Uh-huh. Um, it's the, it also happens to be the westernmost point of the United States. But so I was thinking about the baby and how, um, I was reading some yogi. So wait, did these, did these native Americans know that it was the westernmost point? They really believe that. No, but did, did, did they geographically know that it was the westernmost yeah, no, point of the like continent? There's like a specific rock. But how do they know? I don't know. 
How do they measure that? Or did they just like sense it? I'm not sure. They, I, what, like, it's so easy to fall into this. Some like, ayahuasca or some peyote yeah. probably help them figure it out. Like, I'm such a, I feel like, you know, I feel bad about the fact that like I still, even though like my rational mind tells me better, I'm just like, they were wiser than we were. <laughs> I think so too. I looked to them for wisdom. They just like stood there and like sensed that they were, you know. We look at Twitter for wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's, yeah. So, uh, you know what, the, your book, like there's a part of your book that uh, touches on um, Dave Eggers and a heartbreaking work mm-hmm. of staggering genius, which like, you know, if you're writing a grief memoir and you're in, you know, our age range or thereabouts, like it's impossible kind of to avoid that. That's like the, the grief memoir that, uh, you know, sort of has done the best. I yeah. Guess. His book was a big deal to me. Um, my father hadn't died yet when Dave's book came out and I was in New York and a friend sent it to me. She was living out here in LA and she'd gone to hear him read. She's like, I think you should read this book. And, um, she'd had him write, like write to me in it. And, uh, and I read it and I was just like, Oh my God, I didn't know anybody who'd gone through anything like what I was kind of going through. And uh, I got a little Dave obsessed as we all were, you know, and at a certain point, you know, when McSweeney's got really huge and Dave came out and everything. I had a Dave poster. Yeah. See, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but mine, mine had this, my mind had this extra level because I was like, Oh my God, he gets yeah. what I'm going oh, through. Yeah. Like not only is he, is he cool and he's young and he's a boy and he's a writer. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to marry him. We're going to talk about dead parents all the time. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) That sounds hot. And I made that a total goal. And so uh, (laughs) when I moved out to LA, I went to a reading of his and he happened to mention that he was starting an LA branch of his nonprofit, 826. And I was there immediately. I was like there with muffins and my, my tucks on and I was just ready. <laughs> and I ended up working for, for it. I ended up becoming the volunteer coordinator and I handled all the events and stuff. So I really, you know, weaseled my way in there. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I met Dave and I got to know him a little bit and it was great. And I loved, I love his nonprofit. I think it's amazing. They so did you, but you, and you chatted with him, but it was like awkward, like. Yeah, we had this really awkward, horrible moment. We were painting a room and, uh, and I was like, my parents died too. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know? And I, yeah. And I was like, I'm writing a memoir too. <laughs> and then I just wanted to die because <laughs> he didn't really say anything. And luckily somebody came along really fast right then. and was like, Dave, we need some help with this tape. Dave, you want a muffin? I know. <laughs> and he and I were just both like, whew, yeah. glad that's over. And that was it. That was really it. That was the only time we ever really talked about that. <laughs> glad we got that. Glad we, you know, glad we had that discussion, Dave. Yeah. You know, so do you ever see him again? So, um, you know, I mean, I worked there for a year, so I saw him a lot and we talked about other stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, so. but he didn't like. I mean, I, I got to feel like he gets that. And he was married by then too, so that was out of the picture. Oh yeah. Well, I, but I mean, like as far as like you know, are you prepared now that you are a grief memoirist um, to have grief? I mean, and you already work in. I mean, you, you know, you work in hospice, so you're dealing with this all the time. Like, I guess you're probably pretty well prepared for people at readings and stuff to come up to you and tell you their stories. Yeah, I think it's going to be really intense. Um, but I wanted very much for this to be a book that helped people. I found books like Dave's book to be so helpful to me in my grief journey. Did you ever worry that, like, um, oh, here's just one more grief memoir? Did oh, you- yeah. God, I, I was embarrassed for so long to say I was even writing a memoir. It's embarrassing. The word memoir I found. <laughs> I mean, I think there's some great memoirs out there, but it's also this kind of, like, thing that it's like reality television. I mean, it's kind of gross. So so how, do you, what, how did you get around that, or how did you make peace? I'm proud of my book. I, I feel really good about it. I wrote it. I finished it. I think it's a little different. Um, I think I did the best job I could in terms of memoir. Well, and you know, and if it helps like one yeah. young girl, I really, I mean, not really to sound corny, if it like one person, I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds corny, but like shit, then it's worth it. Right. I felt so lonely in my grief process and I was so confused about all the ways I was grieving and I thought I was doing it all wrong. And, 
um, I just was so judgmental of myself that I wrote this book as honestly as possible. Um, which is the only way to do a memoir. Yeah. And I wrote about all the terrible things I thought and felt, you know, like when I, my mom's body really grossed me out when she was really sick. I just, it was awful to look at. I couldn't deal with it. And it just, I, I thought she looked horrible. I didn't want to touch her. I, those things scared me. And for so long I felt really guilty about that. And then, and then I realized that we all feel stuff like that and nobody talks about it and it makes everybody feel guilty and we don't need to feel guilty about it. People are grossed out by me now. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little grossed out. <laughs> yeah, right. um, so me. I felt like if I were to able to write about that and put that out there and it would maybe help people get through what they're going through, then, then the book would be worth it. And it would be worth having to say that I wrote a memoir. So, okay. Now is it, uh, you know, do you feel, did you feel any sense of catharsis having written it or is that just overplayed too? I mean, well, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's funny cause I feel more, I feel, I feel healthier and, and more distant from that, that narrative of my life than ever before. You know, like for so long I was the girl whose parents died and I really clung to that. Yeah. It's like your identity. It was. And now I don't think about that anymore and it's not who I feel like I am. And I, I used to feel that I had to tell people right away when I met new people. I was like, my parents died because they just like couldn't know anything about. You me have a little button. Yeah, I have dead parents and I'm really angsty and you know. Um, Want a beer? <laughs> totally. It's two p.m. <laughs> um, and now I feel so far from that, and I just never think about that as who I am. And yet at the same time, I'm putting out this book that's going to completely make that who I am. Right. Which, so it's kind of interesting. But it's, a, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a bit, you will be for a while, especially when you're like doing the press cycle for it. But like mm-hmm. eventually, like, I think you sort of like, it helps you kind of like compartmentalize. That might not be the right word. It's like, it's like you, you box up the experience in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, like, I this feel was like, I closed that chapter. Yeah. It's done. Like, this is a part of my life. Close the book colors, the cover. This is, this is as close as I could come to telling the, to- the whole truth of it. And here it is. Mm-hmm. If you want to know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and it'll be, you know, I don't know. I think it's a cool thing. And, and do you ever think about like, uh, how your, your uh, daughter or your two children, you know, are going to react to reading it in years to come? Like, yeah, that's kind of scary. There's a lot of sex and boys and alcohol and um, risky behavior in this book. And so, and what about the alcohol? Like, did you, did you get sober? You know, um, I, I, I quit drinking for a matter of months. I went to some AA meetings. I didn't really feel like the, the program was for me. I think it's a helpful program for some people. Um, and, you know, Gina Frangella and I talked about this a little bit recently, and I know that um, Lydia, God, I can never say her last name, who wrote The Chronology of Water. Yuknovich. Yeah. She yeah. read a little bit about this in her memoir, too, and just kind of about, I feel like I worked really hard to heal the source of my pain rather than deal with the drinking. I wanted to really deal with, like, what was causing me to drink so much. Yeah. And so... But it's like you don't have, like, an alcohol allergy like a lot of alcoholics, but you were just over-medicating. Yeah, I was. And I was doing it a lot. And it was at a point where it really wasn't... I was having a really hard time. Um, I was drinking all the time, you know. Like morning? No, but I was just drinking heavily every day. Like and 12 I was getting drunk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was buying cases of wine, and I was drunk, driving drunk, and, you know, uh-huh. ruining relationships with my alcohol um, state and... Um, and it was pretty ugly, you know, and I finally had to really quit, quit for a while. So now what do you do? No, I drink again. I mean, I even, I'm even a pregnant drinker. Like I, I still have a glass of wine. You're drunk now? I'm drunk right now. (laughs) (laughs) Pregnant. No, No, but I mean like a glass, you have a couple glasses of wine. Yeah. I still like to get drunk now and then too. Yeah. Um, and I just, but I just don't, I don't need it like I used to, or I don't, I, I don't know if I ever needed it, but it was something I just, I couldn't be myself without 
something else yeah. in there, you know? Just like scared to feel the actual thing. Yeah. And then you did. Mm-hmm. And then what? Then I just really did it. And then it was like, oh, this isn't as bad. It's like, this isn't yeah. what I was, I was so scared for so many years yeah. to really face it. And then you face it. It was like, oh, you know? Yeah, it was really hard. But then it was like, okay, well, there's actually an end to it. <laughs> so right. I'm reaching that place. And now every time I see a glass of wine, I don't have to chuck it back really fast so I can get to the next one. Right. I can actually just kind of hang out and enjoy it and cool. know that I can handle my life. Cool. Well, it's been uh, it's been wonderful talking to you, Me and too. thank, thank you, you for so being much. so honest about everything. And um, best of luck with the book. Thank you. You're going on tour. Yeah, I'm doing a little six city tour. Oh, what cities? Um, Boston, San Diego, San Francisco, L.A., New York, and Chicago. Okay, folks, you heard it. <laughs> Claire, good luck to you. Thank you so much, Brad. All right, folks, there it is. That's the show. That's Claire Bidwell-Smith. Go get her book. It's called The Rules of Inheritance, and it's available now from Hudson Street Press, wherever books are sold. Uh, You can find Claire on the web at clairebidwellsmith.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Claire Bidwell. She also has a Facebook presence. This show, it has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Don't forget to check out thenervousbreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on the Twitter at TNB Tweets. And speaking of The Nervous Breakdown, uh, I don't think Claire and I mentioned this, but one of the best things uh, that has happened over at The Nervous Breakdown in its nearly six years of existence is the fact that Claire and her husband, Greg, met as a result of the site. Uh, They've both contributed in the past and uh, back in the day, they started reading each other and commenting on each other's work. And then one thing led to another. And now they're married and expecting their second child. So uh, the moral of the story, of course, is that you can meet the person of your dreams over at the nervous breakdown. And what better way to get to know somebody than to read their deepest thoughts. So speaking of deep thoughts, uh, I do want to clarify that I did not receive any money from Subway uh, for this program. Just the fact that I mentioned Subway and the $5 footlong song at the top of the show, uh, I want you to know that that was not a product inclusion. Uh, and the reason that I did it uh, was uh, simply because when, when we were driving up into the mountains last weekend, uh, we stopped off at Subway. So I guess it's been on my brain and it popped into my head. And that's why that's why it happened. So, uh, And besides that, you know, the, the $5 footlong song is, is a catchy tune. And uh, yeah, what, what else can I say? Uh, this show has been, uh, this particular episode I think has been uh, a little bit difficult because it's impossible, uh, to be too, uh, funny or irreverent when you're talking about, uh, these kinds of, these kinds of, uh, topics, you know, losing parents or, uh, when you're talking about cancer or you're talking about losing a close friend, you know, some things in life, uh, they just suck. But I, you know, I don't think that means that there's absolutely no place for humor in it. I just think that it's harder. And, uh, it's harder to do well. And, you know, I'm a person who really needs it. I lean on it as a coping mechanism, as I think a lot of people do. And, uh, just as an example, I remember, uh, last weekend driving up through the high country on the way to Crested Butte. And, uh, we were, you know, high up in the Rockies on a plateau with snow capped peaks in every direction. And my buddy Patrick was driving, uh, the truck and we were listening to the radio and this song came on. And it was like, you know, I think it was like Enya or someone like that. You know, it, was that it was that kind of music with, uh, you know, with like ethereal vocals and it felt kind of spiritual, kind of holy. And, uh, you know, the inside of the, of the car was quiet and we were all looking out 
at these high pasture lands. And it was a heavy silence. And you kind of knew that we were all uh, thinking about Devo. And, uh, you know, I could feel, you know, I could feel like this sadness rising in me. And uh, it was just uncomfortable. And, and I remember blurting out kind of suddenly, you know, I said, imagine right now if we looked out into the pasture and saw two horses having sex. And it was pretty unexpected and everyone laughed. And, uh, you know, you kind of had to be there. But with the song, it was perfect. And uh, it felt like everyone was sort of desperate to laugh. Like we needed to kind of puncture that moment. And uh, I remember, you know, after that song ended and the mood in the car had, had sort of turned, uh, we then flipped stations uh, and there was some kind of like romantic power ballad playing, which was even better. And so, you know, the, the, the joke sort of held up for the rest of the trip. It kind of sustained us. Like whenever we started to hit a lull, we would just talk about horse sex. So there you have it, folks. That's a, a golden nugget of wisdom for you. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And remember, uh, if you're dealing with bereavement or difficult emotions related to the loss of a loved one, if you're overwhelmed with complicated feelings of deep confusion, just uh, try your best to imagine two horses making sweet, sweet love in the middle of a high mountain field. Thank you.